Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. George Washington once said, I had always hoped that this land might become a safe and agreeable asylum to the virtuous and persecuted part of mankind, to whatever nation they might belong. And Emma Lazarus's famous sonnet that begins, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, was inscribed on a plaque and, and placed on the inner wall of the Statue of Liberty. America was built by immigrants, and yet there's been a strong political opposition to immigration for a long time. In his latest book, Tim Kaine, the J.P. Conte Research Fellow in Immigration Studies at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, argues that without its long tradition of robust and diverse immigration, the United States would have, have a weaker economy, a weaker military, and even weaker innovation. The Immigrant Superpower, How Brains, Brawn, and Bravery Make America's Strongest, published by Oxford University Press, and brings Tim Kaine to our show now. Welcome. Leonard, thank you so much. Great to be here. You write that immigration is essential to the American identity. Well, except for the indigenous people who lived here before the Europeans arrived, aren't we all immigrants or descendants of immigrants? I think that's right. I, I think it's one of the things that makes North America in general a unique place. You know, if you re-scrambled world geography, there'd be the most remote continent, and eventually it would become a, a nation and not a homeland. That's what makes the United States different, and it's something that you know among my Native American friends that that sort of celebrated. This is a reminder that, that this is a special place. Are were the slaves considered immigrants? Well, no, I think there were a, there, there's a story there, certainly, of uh, slavery being part of the human condition uh, forever, you know, going back to the Old Testament and even beyond. What made America special was ending slavery and really being a, a leader in that. Um, and I think it was driven because the founding virtue is we are all equal, right? Everyone here is radically equal. It had never been thought of that way before. And it goes along with ending slavery and being open as Washington our founding father, who you quoted, you know, this is meant to be a place where people of every race and religion come. And having slaves or indentured servitude or, or lynchings, uh, as if Italians were lynched, for example, 100 years ago, quite often, um, none of that is acceptable. And we're constantly marching toward the ideal that the founding fathers saw. Well, the signers of the Declaration of Independence were all descendants of immigrants, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, some were slaveholders, but they held out this ideal that they knew the nation could and should be better. Do you argue that the widespread consensus among U.S. citizens on immigration has been hijacked by political partisanship? Yeah, there's something wrong with our democracy, Leonard, right now. Because aren't we all immigrants or descendants of immigrants, uh, uh, the, the 300 million people who live in this country? Exactly. And and what I really try to do with this book, The Immigrant Superpower, is make a national security case. Right. So the, we've always heard the debates about the economy. And, and I address that. I'm, I've got a background in, in economics, but I'm also a military veteran. And, you know, to the hawks out there like me who, who want America to win this century against what increasingly looks like a pretty oppressive state in China, just to take one example, or Russia, who's acting very thuggish. Immigration is sort of the ace card that we have in, in winning this century and securing the nation. So, you know, we, we the nativism that is sort of this thread, uh, this notion of let's become isolationist, we're going to lose and freedom's going to lose if, if that takes hold. Well, 
Hasn't nativism always been an element in American politics? Didn't Congress restrict citizenship to white persons in 1790? Yes and no. So Benjamin Franklin thought Germans were swarthy and and weren't really, um, you know, proper. So there's been this hostility um, and and a sort of racial purity, but it's it's sort of melted down. The, The counterpoint has been an openness. And George Washington really stands out as a shining example, saying, he, he made the point of welcoming Jews, for example. And this is when d- the idea of Jewish Americans was really small. The bulk of the world's Jews lived in, in Europe. And that really didn't change for a century or longer than a century after Washington's death. But he made the point of emphasizing all religions, all races. Unfortunately, the turn against uh, Asians was in 1882. And it's, a, it's an ugly chapter in our history. I forget who it is, Leonard, who, who I'm quoting, but someone, I think it was at the New York Times, said, you know, nativism has been a constant minor chord in our story. And it has. Um, but those anti-Chinese laws were overturned, sadly, not by FDR, who left them in place. It was really Truman and then LBJ um, in 1965 who finally said we won't have any more racial quotas. That, that was an ugly chapter. There have been four distinct immigration policies in U.S. history. How many of them have been restrictive? Ha, I love that. Yeah, we, we, we hear a lot that the country's being invaded and flooded with immigrants. Not so, Leonard. We, we're probably about half the level of immigrants relative to the population. I'm talking immigrant arrivals. You know, look at the records at Ellis Island. And we're only at half the levels that were coming in at the turn of the last century. So the only phase of the four that you mentioned that was restrictive went from about 1921 when they put in emergency quotas. And of course, they made them permanent a few years later until 1965. So there was a gosh, what is that? 30, 40 year history of isolationism. And it was LBJ that, that changed that forever. And you know who's the real president that stands out is uh, George Bush, the elder uh, in 1990, basically doubled legal immigration levels. And we've been uh, enjoying the benefits of that ever since. Well, I, I was interested in the uh, the populist backlash against farm, foreign immigration uh, a century ago in 1921. But were people aware of the fact that at the time that the North couldn't have won the Civil War without immigrants? <laughs> no, no, no. They were saying things like we don't want beaten men from beaten races. I mean, it was really horrible. Uh, Calvin Coolidge was particularly um uh, a white supremacist that said he wanted to limit uh, immigration to Nordics. So, you know, they didn't want Italians and Jews. It was just ugly stuff. The Jews it, are it, from it, Eastern well, Europe and the Italians, of course, were Southern and considered Southern European and considered kind of swarthy. Yeah. Listen, of course, we don't even need to talk about Turks and Greeks. But, mm. you know, it was you look at the Band of Brothers, Leonard, all those guys are, are the are second generation immigrants. You know, their parents spoke Italian, not English, or Polish, not English. And they loved America. And, and it was that sort of sentiment, I think, that really turned the tide. And, and frankly, LBJ said, the Soviets are killing us um, with their propaganda because our immigration laws are so racist. So it was, again, foreign policy that drove America to uh, be closer to its founding ideals. Well, in the restrictive uh, legislation of 1921, were there any similarities to our current situation because of fears of a global pandemic, in that case, the Spanish flu? 
Yeah, isn't that amazing? I mean, this is what's scary. So 1921, which was 100 years ago when I when I was writing the book, exactly. Now it's 101. There was, we were coming off of a world war, World War One, and a global pandemic, and it fed into this anxiety about dirty foreigners, and you know, just let's let's you know hold the line. And we're seeing echoes of that. Um, they have these things now that even President Biden has kept in place called Title 42 restrictions that are blocking immigrants um, from coming across the border. Uh, it, it, it's it's if, if we have here's what I worry about, Leonard. What if there's a COVID-24 that's really virulent and starts spreading? Man, it's easy to imagine a repeat of that isolationist hmm. era uh, from the Spanish flu 100 years ago. But uh didn't immigrants and the sons of immigrants fill the ranks of the victorious U.S. Army coming home from Europe after World War One? Yeah, uh, you mentioned that earlier. Um, and then the sons of immigrants fought in World War Two as well. So, well, I mentioned the Civil War. So, you did. Immigrants you did. have been fighting in all of our wars, uh, and yet that that's been ignored. It is overlooked. I think ignored is probably right. Um, Folks don't realize that of all the medals of honor ever given, that one out of four of them have been gone to, have gone to first generation immigrants, and about half have gone to first and second generation immigrants. So you, it turns out that people who are foreign born are more patriotic Americans. They love this country with an intensity, you know, of the converted, because they're coming from places where, you know, the hostility to slavery, uh, racial equality are are uh, not around, and they come here in America, and they just realize this is a place worth fighting for. Now, the uh, opposition to immigration over the years has been bipartisan, hasn't it? It does. I mean, the parties 100 years ago were the policy mix was, was shuffled from what it is today. I think where you see the most resistance is in a sort of blue-collar labor movement. You know, the late... The labor movement uh, didn't even like Southerners coming up to the North. They thought African-Americans were going to steal jobs and wanted to suppress that. They, and you see, even when Joe Biden, when he was a senator, was very hostile to the idea of foreign workers coming in. Even today, the president has a, uh, a bust of Cesar Chavez on his desk in the Oval Office. Well, Cesar Chavez, you know, sent out private gangs along the southern border to stop Mexicans from coming in because he thought it suppressed farm workers' wages uh, of his own of his own union. So even though he, you, even though he was a descendant of, of, of a, a Mexican immigrant. Right. You'd think that would, you know, the hypocrisy would be evident. And, and it's one of the reasons that Chavez actually lost a lot of admiration and power. I think holding him up as an icon is a, is a mistake, but it, it, the, the populist fear that immigrants steal jobs is a pernicious myth that spans centuries in many countries. It's not just Americans. It's wrong. Um, but it's one that's persistent. The, uh, the the legislation that was passed after World War One was emergency immigration legislation that instituted the national origins formula. What was that? Oh, right. So basically what they said is uh, there was a certain percentage of the American public that came from Germany and that should be held constant or England. And they, they wanted to sort of hold the ethnic mix because they didn't want beaten men from beaten races. Now they instituted this in 1920, but guess which year they picked for 
you know, w- when the racial quotas would be set. It was actually 30 years prior from a census, you know, long before when there weren't so many Southern Europeans, Eastern Europeans, uh, Jews, Catholics. So it was not only racist, it was it was, I guess you'd say religious. It was very Protestant biased. And uh, those quotas got locked in stone or locked in law in 1924. So uh, Catholics, Jews, and Muslims uh, were not as welcome as pro- North uh, Northern European Protestants. Absolutely not. No, they were they were uh, there was a huge bias against them, and and you know not even a historically accurate bias. They went back in time to set these racial quotas, and of course, I in the book The Immigrant Superpower. Uh, I, I talk about how imagine an America where we didn't have these racist restrictions, particularly on China and Japan. Mm-hmm. Our country would be much stronger, much bigger. Uh, you know, we're already the number one country in the world economically. We, we would be so far ahead if we hadn't had racist restrictions against the Chinese going back to uh, 1880. And what had led to that? After all, the Chinese uh, built the, the railroad across the country. Yeah. Right. So I think that was the problem is once that that golden spike was uh, set in place, suddenly there were you know, a ton of Chinese Americans uh, without work and they and they started to enter the regular labor force. And California was the worst. They were incredibly hostile to Chinese and Japanese workers. They made ridiculous laws uh, like the Chinese that were getting into the laundry business. They made laws about how laundry could be delivered. It couldn't be you know, you weren't allowed to use a pole over your shoulder because uh, yeah, that's how Chinese workers tended to deliver their uh, dry cleaning. So it, it was a bad time. It was so, all, you know, the whole West was hostile. We're talking about you know massacres of, of Chinese workers in the mines and things like that. And it was cheered on by the Western newspapers. And so there was a lot of pressure for this restriction. And finally, in 1882, a, a very populist, weak-willed, and I think shameful Congress passed those laws. Whoopi Goldberg notwithstanding, uh, did the civil rights movement recognize that uh, these laws were racially discriminatory? I think the civil rights movement in America was was probably correctly for its time focused on um, what you might call black-white relations. Uh, it's been late in recognizing that America is a diverse place. And even the fact, and I make this in the point in the book, and I think it's a little controversial, but it needs to be said, that white's not a real category, right? I mean, you know, today you've got kids in school who are Afghan refugees who are being told they've got white privilege because the government categorized them as white. I mean, it's it's overdue to to break up that category and recognize Arabs as a category. If we're going to do bean counting, let's do it honestly, right? English, Irish, Italian, those those deserve to be separate categories. Whiteness is an illusion. And it, frankly, it's gotten to the point where it's offensive. My guest on today is Leonard Lopate at large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Tim Kane. And his latest book is The Immigrant Superpower, How Brains, Brawn, and Bravery Make America Stronger. It's published by Oxford University Press. So um, we then get, in 1965, we finally get some changes. We, the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, also known as the Hart Seller Act, uh, that was signed into law by President Johnson. What did that do? 
so at long last, it ended the racial and country origins quotas. So no longer could uh, could the government stop someone from entering. Uh, in particular, there were very few Chinese uh, allowed in, or, or basically um, people from any country in Asia. In the 1965- By the way, we law, saw that here in New York in an odd way, because the, da- the Manhattan Chinatown was peopled by descendants of of Chinese who had come here earlier, but uh, it remained, uh, but no new people. It was only after Asians were finally allowed into the country that we wound up with this influx that led to the Brooklyn Chinatown and, well, at first the Flushing, Queens Chinatown, and then the Brooklyn Chinatown uh, with uh, a whole a slew of, of new kinds of dishes. That is amazing. Yeah, the, the Chinese um, that came in originally back in the 1800s were from one particular uh, region and, and town in mainland China called Toishan. Yeah. Um, I actually don't mostly, know a lot about the region. Mostly it, Cantonese. It, it, so they yeah, spoke it, Cantonese, and then the new people who came in spoke Mandarin, which is the language of, of most of China. Yeah, but but there's it's a it's a fascinating two way story, and this might be a little bit of a diversion from your from your question. But um, I'm always interested the, in hearing things that I haven't heard before. <laughs> yeah, I just I thought it was fascinating that this town, uh, Toishan, back in China, um, got so many remittances from you know the American Chinese uh, that were sending money home that they were one of the richest cities in all of China with with essentially streets paved in gold, uh, relatively. So there's this myth that um, America, when we're open to immigration, the restrictionists will tell you, oh, that just, you know, it's a, it, it, it means that they're losing their best and brightest. Not at all. You know, Oppenheimer's father was an immigrant and he became a tailor. I think it was in New York. His brain wouldn't have been utilized back in Europe. And yet he has this son who essentially helps us win World War II, uh, invents atomic energy by and large. So all these Chinese that had come here were thriving and was helping America grow, but it was also helping China grow. What about people from other parts of Asia, the Japanese, people from India? Yeah, India is almost a non-story. I mean, it wasn't until recently that there were large numbers of uh, of people from uh, India, Pakistan, uh, Burma, Bangladesh coming here. And it's actually leading to this virtuous cycle. We're living through it now. You know, one of the things that I think always surprises people is that we have more legal immigrants from China today than we do from Mexico. Um, Mexican immigration has essentially settled near zero um, because there was a back and forth flow. Well, because uh, we keep on putting their kids in cages. Yeah. Well, it's not it's not Mexican kids in cages anymore. It's now it's uh, Central American kids in cages. But that is that is a let's put a pin in that. Sixty five changed things because it ended the ethnic quotas and instead it moved to a system of uh, family based migration. Uh, that's come under attack, but I think it was a really smart move because, you know, if you're bringing over a spouse or a parent or a brother or sister, right, so that, that that's the bulk of our legal visas, um, those are people that then assimilate and are able to integrate very easily into a community. We don't have the problems that most other countries of the world do where it's transactional, right? Do you have a particular skill that we value? Okay, you get to immigrate. We do a little of that. There are some employment-based visas. 
But that hasn't worked out well in Europe. There's a lot of alienation and, and not a, a assimilation. Here, you become an immigrant. You have to take an oath of citizenship if you want to become a citizen. You have to learn the history, and most immigrants do. And my God, has it worked well. Well, do you see Brexit as something similar to what has gone on in this country? Um, I'm not sure I understand that. My, my sense of Brexit was that well, because Europe was it, trying— Because before Brexit— it, there could be a movement back and forth uh, because Britain was part of the uh, the EU. And then suddenly all of these people who were in the EU, including many dark-skinned people, were no longer allowed into England. I, and I'm the argument was also they were taking jobs. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that each country should be allowed to set its own immigration policy uh, and the, the European Union was meant to be an economic union. And I think the bureaucracy got a little bit over its skis and the British rebelled against that. You know, the British don't use the euro, for example. They have their own pound. And someday maybe if uh, what the European court says, oh, you have to get rid of your currency. I mean, you know, th those are individual nations and they weren't signing off their sovereignty just because they joined this economic union. So immigration did become a touchstone. Um, for them. And I, and as I pointed out, the, there's a lot of tension, ethnic tension um, that we just don't have here because I think we do immigration right. We base it on families primarily, not on this transactional um, work visa thing. Well, that new law, the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, created a seven-category preference system. What received priority? And two of those were, were family, um, the biggest of which was immediate family got priority. So he's talking about husbands and wives, things like that. Roughly 65 to 70 percent of our legal immigration comes through the two family um, visa categories. Much smaller elements um, go to employment based visas. You know, and there it's an alphabet soup of, of different visas. You have these exceptional um, person visas. We're talking about professional basketball athletes and scientists. It's good to have those categories too. But I think one of the innovations in our visa system is the diversity visa. Um, in 1990, George Bush, who was one of the unsung heroes of immigration history, uh, recognized that some countries were still left out. There were just say, so few people from Rwanda in America that there wasn't a, a family um, river, essentially, coming into the country. And that wasn't really fair to Rwandans who might want to immigrate. So for countries that were not as represented in the historical flow, uh, people could apply for this diversity lottery. And you had a better chance of winning if, if your nation had historically been less represented. And you know what? Those are some of the most patriotic uh, Americans we have. You can assess the, the likelihood of committing crimes by immigrant status and category. Of course, the most likely criminals are people born here. The least likely are immigrants. And among the immigrants, the least likely criminals are people who are diversity winners. It's, you know, there's never been a thing like this in history where a country was so popular and everyone wanted to go pursue that country's dream that they were, you know, there was a lottery to get in. Um, it's a sign of how great America is, and I hope we preserve it. But some of this came under attack during the Trump years, didn't it? Yeah, I, yes and no. The children yes and of, no. of immigrants, uh, there was uh, all sorts of things. If you were born here, that didn't mean that you necessarily would be a citizen. There were all sorts of complications that were being dealt with. 
Well, so I would I hope I don't you know shock anybody's ears to hear that I'm a Republican. I mean, I, I I'm a conservative. I'm a registered Republican. I've been involved in politics. This book, The Immigrant Superpower, is is sort of a love letter to those of us who remember Ronald Reagan and George Bush, presidents who were celebrating immigration. And I know a lot of people want to say President Trump's anti-immigrant. I don't think so. Um, I, I look, I don't see eye to eye with the guy. But even the reforms that he recommended were saying, let's preserve legal immigration. He didn't cut legal immigration levels at all. Uh, that's not true on refugees. We could talk about that. But he was always angry in representing this frustration with illegal immigration and, and the sense of lawlessness at the border, which independent voters don't like. And frankly, Democratic voters are uncomfortable with as well. Now, I didn't like some of his rhetoric, but when he got down to policies, I wouldn't say he was as... Uh, as radical as, as some have. Well, we'll get to that in a little while. Uh, I, I want to stick with the Immigration Nationality Act of 1965. Didn't it set a numerical limit on immigration from the Western Hemisphere for the first time in American history? That's right. That is right. Um, used to be, before 1965, when we talk about these restrictions on China and Southern Europeans and whatnot, uh, nobody ever said that there could be a limit on people from Mexico just walking across the border and joining the country, or from Central America, or from Brazil, for that matter. Wait, wait, really wait the- let's go a little further. There are areas near the border where people own land across, you know, across the border, and nobody ever thought twice about it. They just moved back and forth, uh, own ranches and the like. Uh, that all has all, uh, was changed in 1965? It really did. And is yeah. that it leads to the talk of building a wall later? Yeah, I, I, my book didn't delve into that, but you're right. Um, and, and I've done other radio shows on these matters, so <laughs> we dealt with that. Yeah. No, it's to me, it was prof- I mean, I've been working on immigration policy for a long time. And as I researched this book, I found out, my God, everybody's worried about open borders. And frankly, I, I am a little worried about it, too. But that was policy for this hemisphere uh, from the founding until 1965. And nobody really thought much of it because, you know, there wasn't a terrorism problem. There wasn't really a crime problem. Um, And a lot of Mexicans would come here and work and go home. We started to create this sense of illegal immigration when they weren't able to do that. Um, And and so, yeah, that probably was a mistake. Uh, We've got a, and I think we see Mexico now becoming so much more prosperous this notion of you know a third world country it's it's done it's it's not Mexico's advancing tremendously so um, yeah we need to think about Mexico as an ally going forward instead of uh, being so suspicious. You've included something from the final speech that Ronald Reagan made as president, uh, in which he quoted something a man had written to him. Should I read it? I would love that. Yeah, please. You can go to live in France, but you cannot become a Frenchman. You can go to live in Germany or Turkey or Japan, but you cannot become a German or Turk or Japanese. But anyone from any quarter of the earth can come to live in America and become an American. Now, I know you said that you're a Republican. Reagan obviously was a Republican. But it's my sense that that there aren't too many people from that party today who would quote something like that now. Yeah, it's become rarer, that's for sure. And that wasn't so long ago. What I love about that Reagan address is those were his last words from the White House. Mm -hmm. 
right? He had one story that he wanted to tell to remind Americans, you know, his vision of America. And it was this idea of a golden city on a hill that inspired people from all over the world to come and, and join. And, and uh, part of that was to make us stronger and to face down Soviet communism. The man he was quoting uh, in, in that address was a U.S. Navy sailor who had uh, helped the Vietnamese boat people, if you remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Reagan had arms open to refugees from Vietnam. Um, I, sadly, when we want to talk about contrast, the Republican Party under Trump really closed that refugee door. And uh, it, it, uh, this is one of the things President Biden's done right. I'm a Republican, so I don't like a lot of what he's doing, but he he's expanded the refugees. And, you know, we need that. These are people that need help. Um, go back to George Washington. We're supposed to be an asylum to the world. Uh, we were certainly to the pilgrims. And now, um, you know, whether it's Venezuela or Cuba still, um, this is the place to come for freedom. So I, I do want to remind people that's what the Republican Party used to stand for. But in the same point, Democrats used to be much more hostile to immigration, right? They they worried about immigrants stealing jobs. And there's been a, a sea change there. So bottom line, though, Leonard, if I can put a wrap this, Gallup polling uh, has consistently shown warmer attitudes toward immigrants since the 1960s, almost every single year. And that's not just Democrats. Democrats, independents, Republicans support immigration, greater levels of immigration. And, um, and, and so, you know, this is a bipartisan embrace. This new century, despite Trump's rhetoric, Legal immigration is still incredibly popular. Well, I guess the pollsters didn't ask Steve Bannon his opinion on these things. We're good. We have to take a little break. This is Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Give me your time, your pool. Your huddled masses yearning to breathe free The wretched refuse of your teeming shores Send these, the homeless tempest-tossed to me I lift my lamp beside the golden door. A Russian immigrant to the United States, Irving Berlin, singing uh, the song that he created from that fabulous poem. Before I get back to my conversation with Tim Kaine, I want to let you know that anyone who signs up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $75 or more, will receive a free copy of his book, The Immigrant Superpower, How Brains, Brawn, and Bravery Made America Stronger. You can participate in this offer by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 during today's show. And and don't forget to make that $75 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And thank you very much. And we return now to Tim Kaine, who's the J.P. Conte Research Fellow, Fellow on Immigration Studies at Stanford University's Hooper Institution and has twice served as a senior economist on the Joint Economic Committee of the U.S. Congress. Uh, his latest book is the one we've been discussing, The Immigrant Superpower, 
How Brains, Brawn, and, and Bravery Make America Stronger. It's from Oxford University Press. I want to get back to uh, the opposition to uh, immigration. You, you said that widespread consensus among U.S. citizens uh, on, on immigration has been relatively positive, but it's been hijacked by political partisanship. What about Michelle Malkin, a conservative commentator who published a book in 2002 with the title Invasion, How America Still Welcomes Terrorists, Criminals, and Other Foreign Menaces to Our Shores? She claimed that the U.S. immigration system played a role in the 9-11 attacks. Those are fighting words for me because, it, one, it's profoundly untrue and, and and also offensive to blame 9-11 on immigrants. Not, uh, not, one, were, of, not one of the 9-11 uh, attackers was an immigrant. Not one of them. Now, just, and you know what? This is also current. There was a British citizen who flew over uh, recently, uh, just after the new year this year. He went down to Texas and he held all these folks hostage in a synagogue. Um, you know, he was a terrorist. He was foreign born. What, what was he not? He was not an immigrant. There are people that if you're going to perform terrorism and get into the U.S., you come as a tourist and pretend you're going to go to Disneyland. You don't you don't go through the process of applying, waiting for approval, getting a green card. So the, the there has not been a, a terrorist to come across the southern border ever. And, uh, and in fact, most terrorism, you know, we go through this in the book. Most of the terrorism is is the domestic born. It's guys like Timothy McVeigh. Um, so the thing that really made me upset about discussing 9-11 as I dug into it was how many of the people killed were immigrants. They were veterans. There were two, I point out in the book, Army veterans. One individual, I think his name was Jose Calderon, had been in the U.S. Army for 20 years. He was just about to retire and he was killed. So immigrants were attacked on 9-11. They didn't do the attack. I mean, one was, I think was, her name is Doris Mencheka, and I'm citing this from memory, who scribbled a note. She was a passenger on one of the flights, um, you know, to her husband and her two children. And uh, she'd been working on research for Amgen to, to cure diseases. Immigrant, foreign-born, loved America. So to say that they were attacking on 9-11 is, is, a, is a deep injustice. It's often argued that foreigners bring diseases, commit crimes, and sell drugs, that, that they're job thieves and cultural misfits. Where does that come from? This is the, the worry and the fear of the other, I think, is an ancient fear. That's what you know, psychologists and anthropologists tell us. Um, you know, we, are, we are descended uh, from, from animals. So you know, you, this notion of a zero-sum game view of resources is something that's sort of embedded in our, our thinking. But I, I tell a story in the book. If that's true, how the heck did Las Vegas grow? Because Las Vegas today has 2.2 million people. But if you wind the clock back to a century ago, the year 1900, Leonard, do you know how many people lived in Vegas? And maybe you do because you might have read this in the book. But just mm -hmm. guess how many people lived in Las Vegas in 1900. Not many. <laughs> okay, it was Okay, so now it's 2.2 million yeah. It was 22 people. That's like uh -huh. four families, maybe, maybe five. Um, and, and it went up by well, they were gambling fold. on the future. 
<laughs> it went up by tenfold every decade. It went from 22 to 220 by 1910, and then 2000 by 1920. It just kept galloping more people. The Hoover Dam is built. It became known as Atomic City because they were, you know, letting off uh, these atomic explosions. Tourists flocked to see, you know, the explosions out north of the city. And, um, and you know, now it's, it's thought of as this worldwide capital, and it is for, for entertainment, for cooking. But how did they steal – how did, like, 900 people steal jobs from 100 people or 9,000 steal jobs from 1,000? It's impossible. Immigrants create jobs. They don't steal jobs. Well, but critics claim they take our jobs or live on welfare. Right, right. It's one or the other, right? If, you, if I pointed out in, in the past, um, when you say that uh, a certain ethnic category has a higher workforce participation rate than the native born, you'll hear, well, they're taking our jobs. But if you say they have a lower workforce participation rate, it's all they're all on welfare. I mean, come on, guys, you know, pick, pick your poison. The fact is they're part of society. They add value. Um, when immigrants come to an area, they actually help um, all the local businesses because they're buying their groceries and they're they're renting apartments. So they're they're strengthening the economy. Well, they're opening grocery stores in some. They're point. opening grocery stores or donut shops or you know they're, they're they'll tend to specialize and excel in a category. Um, you know, the textiles and fashion. America's world dominant in those historically because of immigration. So you know, I I love talking about that whole job stealing thing because it's such a myth and Vegas proves it. Frankly, New York proves it too. Well, was, you, you said that the, the general uh, consensus is that immigrants are, are a positive force in America, but wasn't Donald Trump responding to a growing public sentiment when he proposed building that wall? He, and he, he was, was warning against, I, remember, he warned against rapists and murderers and yeah. he also opposed birthright citizenship. Yeah, that that I'm glad. But when that's a constitutional issue, birthright citizenship, so no amount of presidential rhetoric can change it, or even frankly, congressional legislation, that 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 would go back to the people, and I think the American people would just you know reject that right. But look, here's where Donald Trump has a point. There is a there is a way to become too permissive, where you have someone violent who's mentally ill, who's jumped the border, whether there's a wall or not, and he's he's expelled. And then he's allowed back in and caught and expelled. It comes back in, he's caught, he's expelled. At some point, you should put that person in jail. And there was a case, I, I don't think Donald Trump becomes president without the killing of, uh, and I think her name was Katie Steinle, who was a tourist in Los Angeles. And some immigrant, uh, illegal immigrant got a hold of a gun and he was playing around with it. He wasn't trying to murder her, but it went off and it ricocheted off of the uh, pier and hit this poor girl and she died. Um you know, that became a sensation back in 2015, I believe it was, or 2016 before the primaries. And it really put a lot of wind in Trump's comments that in some ways, a lawless border is not a well-functioning society. So we want to have legal immigration where people are vetted. They take an oath of citizenship. We should have more of that. I think that's consistent with what Donald Trump said. Well, but his rhetoric caught on to this illegal lawlessness that nobody likes. You're defending him, but didn't one of his advisors, Stephen Miller, say that if Mr. Trump was reelected, he would fight to limit asylum, target sanctuary cities, expand the travel ban, and cut work visas? 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Stephen Miller is probably not going to endorse this book. <laughs> so, you know, if you're, if you're with me, there is a bit of a, of a fight within the Republican Party. And there's plenty of things with, uh, you know, folks like Malkin and, and uh, that guy who, who I agree with. Immigration, they're just wrong. Um, immigrants are a positive force in our society. That's the historical Republican position. And no, I think Donald Trump, um, there's a struggle. There's a tug of war for, you know, among his advisors about the right immigration policy. And what I like to celebrate is it's the quiet ones in the Trump administration that when he recommended legislation, it kept immigration levels at one million plus a year. And so uh, Miller lost that one. And, uh, and I'd like to say my side won. You write about the bathtub fallacy. What's that? Oh, gosh. Um, what is that? So uh, you're going to have to give me more. But no, I can't I'm remember. sorry. I, I, I wrote down the note and then I, I thought, OK, that takes care of that. He'll answer. <laughs> <laughs> so so the bathtub fallacy is that more people die in bathtubs than uh -huh. die from terrorism so that we shouldn't worry about uh -huh. it. Right. And no, bathtubs actually serve a purpose. Right. And so people slip and fall. But but, you know, the vast majority of the time, they're just fine. Terrorism doesn't serve any sort of mm. positive purpose. So I, I sort of walk through. Let's think about threats accurately. And really was what I was getting at is we're, we're doing a bad job in our country right now. We haven't thought about the covid threat, um, honestly or accurately. And that's led to really stupid policies. Um we didn't think accurately about uh, the terrorist threat either after 9-11. Put in, you know, TSA, I call it security theater restrictions that aren't actually making flying any safer. And in fact, it encourages more people to drive instead of fly because it takes so long to check in for an airplane. And you get more traffic fatalities and you get more congestion. Hmm. So smart policy, it's really important to have cost-benefit analysis. And the ultimate mistake is thinking that immigrants are terrorists. And so they've made immigration so much harder. And in fact, we need more immigration if we want to win this century against China. And so that's what the point of that chapter and the whole bathtub fallacy idea was. Well, I, I regularly on television, I see a story about someone who has uh, e either killed or at least uh, some way attacked a, uh, a Chinese person, uh, blaming them for, the, for COVID. Oh, right. Yeah. Isn't that horrible? And, you know, again, here's where most Americans don't believe that. I don't think any of our listeners today believe that any ethnicity caused COVID. But you get these, you know, half dozen crazy people in a country of 330 million and they ascribe some some cause to it. And it gets way more attention than it deserves. Uh, well, but one then leads to another and then. Uh, more and more people believe it because, well, anyway, that's a whole other matter. Um, you say that once they're here, immigrants are likely to start new businesses, get advanced degrees, patent new inventions. None of the things that they're accused of by the people who are opposed to immigration. Yeah, and it surprises me how much restriction is just ignore that. Just completely ignore it. I mean, there have been years where uh, almost every Nobel Prize was won by an American, something I think we all should be really proud of, our, our education system, our universities in particular. And every one of those Americans who wins a Nobel Prize was foreign born, right? So the best and brightest brains in the world want to come here. And we are so foolish to put any caps on that. So you know, if somebody's got a science and engineering degree, 
that they got from, you know, NYU, current policy says go home. And I think instead, current policy says automatic right to citizenship. If you take the oath, if you're going to assimilate, we want those brains here. My guest is Tim Kaine, whose uh, latest book is The Immigrant Superpower, How Brains, Brawn, and Bravery Make America Stronger, published by Oxford University Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. A listener has just written in uh, a complaint about you. She said, um, uh, she says, how could your guests make the statement that immigrants love this country more than the people who live here? Um, uh, yes, we're all descended from immigrants, but that doesn't make me an immigrant. I was born here and resent anyone telling me that anyone from somewhere else loves this country more than I do. <laughs> how, how would you even know that, He says, she says. And besides, the whole immigrant conflagration, which is made up uh, because no one— uh, resents immigrants. People just want legal immigrants so that we know we're getting people who want to contribute to our welfare, don't have diseases to spread, and don't have criminal records. So I, should I answer, Leonard? Yes, please. So she's right. She's saying you know, I, you're making her very I, I, angry. Well, I would say this. Nobody loves America more than I do. I just think this is the greatest country in the world, the greatest country that's ever been. Um, I'm extremely patriotic. Uh, frankly, I think that's one of the reasons I'm Republican, because I think we're a little more patriotic. But, you know, hey, I come from a Democratic family and they would say, Tim, shut up. You know, we love America, too. But I'll tell you this. On average, when you ask questions and, and we did a we commissioned a poll with YouGov and we asked a, a huge number of foreign born people included in the poll who were who were uh, immigrants, some of them legal American citizens. And we asked things like, is the Constitution the best form of government? Now, this listener might think absolutely because she's super patriotic, but more foreign born people believe in the U.S. Constitution is the best form of government than do native born. More of them, you know, love the free speech uh, protections in the First Amendment than do the native born. And I point out we've got a great system of assimilation and we're attracting these people that love America. You know, the one group of Americans that's actually the least patriotic that isn't assimilating it's teenagers, right? So we need to do some work in our public schools and get back to teaching history so that everyone's as patriotic as that woman who just wrote in. Well, because we also she's right. have a fair number of um, people who say that they're members of the party you belong to who say that it's time to start a revolution or a civil war. So we're ready. this is a weird time right now. Uh, but I, I think it, one of the statistics you point out is really interesting. In the early 19th century, 30% of the population was foreign-born. Now it's just 15%. Right, right. We, we've, um, yeah, it, I think when immigrants come here, they strengthen our civil society. They, they've come from places where slavery still exists, where women can't fully participate in civil society. They value what this country is. Um, and, and I would I would well, we've got only a little bit of time, but I would shift a little bit of attention to why I'm confident um, that immigrants are going to help us fight one of the uh, most toxic topics, which is this idea of wokeism, hmm. that we should base our, our education system on grievances. You know, if you're a kid from Afghanistan who's a refugee, you're you just bring a ton of thankfulness and appreciation for equal freedom and everybody treated equally. Are they being and, welcomed into this country right now? Uh, the people who are escaping Afghanistan or the Uyghurs? 
Well, you know who you know who welcomes them the most are the veterans who served over there in Afghanistan that had these uh, these families, you know, uh, translating, um, helping to fight the jihadis in the mountains, helping us to track down Osama bin Laden. It's it's veterans of the U.S. Army right there in New York, and I know a lot of them are listening. We're the ones that love our our Afghan brothers and sisters who are helping us. Um, the, the people who are not welcoming. I think are missing the point that uh, how how much stronger immigrants have made our country. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that's even a partisan thing. I think that spans across both parties. That there's there's a huge proportion of Americans welcoming the Afghan refugees. It's a shame we we haven't brought over more. And I think it's it's really a black eye that that withdrawal was so poorly managed. Currently, uh, and for the past few years, the United States have been stronger than ever on the world stage. So is it ironic that we're in a situation that mirrors the populism combined with a global pandemic that was happening uh, in 1921? Leonard, I think that's right. You know, and and in this book, The Immigrant Superpower, I I do make the point there are some scary parallels to 1921. Um, And you pointed out some of the rhetoric that we hear politically is becoming more populist. Um, I think the lawlessness at the border, the biggest problem I have with that is that it risks a, a, a backlash in American public opinion, and the pandemic would only cement that. So this is why this book's so important. We, we who support immigration need to make the case now that on every category, economic, security, culturally, uh, immigrants are bringing out the best and strengthening the best in what the United States is, because th- this this next few years, this is the moment where we're going to have this fight. And I really hope for our future generations that we win it and we get it right. Well, I, it's my sense that anti-immigrant a- a- attitudes are not all that different from white supremacist attitudes. I don't mean the same people, but the, the, the fact is that uh, they are the other. There's, a, there's certainly a threat of that. But the counterpoint is, you know, who, who wants to do racial categorizations now? I think that's more coming from the left where, you know, they want to have this this notion of splitting up kids into white groups and the non-white groups and basically have little re-education camps. That stuff makes me furious. But you know who it really hurts are kids who are told, yeah, you have dark skin, but you're, you know, you're Persian. That makes you white. So you've got white supremacy or, you know, you're Jewish. So you're white. That makes a white supremacy. It, it really just erases them and their ethnic identity and their and their religious identity. I mean, I'm a Catholic. You know, believe me, those of us coming from Ireland never had this you know, great millennia of getting along with the British. So, you know, we need to stop talking about whites as a as a racial category and recognize everyone's equal here, equal in the eyes of God, equal in the eyes of the law. And I think that's now a position where the um, conservatives have the upper hand. Um, so, you know, we'll see. There'll be good people on both sides who can come together on, on what's right here. Uh, do you uh, speak to students at Stanford about this? I have, yeah, quite a lot. I mean, and also I've got four children, so I've got kids who are in college and graduates and in high school. No, the reason um, I ask is, uh, do they tend to agree with you? Or uh, do we see difference based on their own backgrounds? Well, I think there's a rise of wokeism on campus, um, but there's also a very quiet, I mean, you know, campuses are, tend to be faculty tend to be very left-leaning and so more conservative kids are uh you know they're they're quiet and a little bit resentful about being put into these racial categories where they don't they don't identify i mean a lot of people who 
the world's telling them they're white. They're like, I don't even think of myself as being anything but part of the human race. So um, it's it's mixed. It's complicated for sure. Thank you so much for being on our show. Tim Kaine, his latest book, The Immigrant Superpower, How Brains, Brawn, and Bravery Made America Stronger, published by the University of uh, – by uh, – what is it? Uh, Oxford. Oxford University Press. It's yeah. been a pleasure having you on the show. Leonard, you're the best. I really appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Oh, by the way, my great thanks to uh, my uh, audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to my executive producer, Keziah Glow, uh, for all of the work that they do over the, uh, over the week. It's all invisible, but it's really important. Um, our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, the Apple channel, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. Right now, that's 212-209-2950. We need your help to continue to bring you this unique in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else and as i mentioned earlier anyone who makes a contribution of 75 dollars or more in the name of leonard lopate at large right now will receive a copy of the book we've been discussing the immigrant superpower how brains brawn and bravery make america stronger by tim kane so why not make that call now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You also might consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20 a month, whatever is you're comfortable with. It allows us to be able to plan for the future. But either way, I hope that you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on, on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Michael Clinton will discuss his new book, Roar into the Second Half of Your Life, and we'll be taking your calls. It's Really provocative. I hope to see you then.